Our scripture reading today is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You can find it on page 827 in your pew Bible. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed in the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. May God bless you. So today we carry on with our Advent series, Glorious Dirt, and we're looking at the second topic, which is the generosity of Christmas. Christmas is known as a season of generosity, of uh, giving gifts. That's one of our core traditions as, as we celebrate Christmas through the world, and I think it's natural uh, because gifts are the language of generosity. But there's another equally old and venerated tradition of Christmas of complaining. <laughs> complaining about the commercialization of Christmas. I'm reading a fascinating book right now about the uh, history of Christmas. Um, I won't I won't talk about it in the sermon, but uh, that is as old as the gift giving itself. That's funny. Um, and the thing is this, on the one hand, we feel that there's something good and, and true to the spirit of Christmas to be giving gifts, to be generous at this time of year. And yet, on the other hand, um, we feel this sigh, this heaviness come over us as we see the decorations going up earlier and earlier every year, and you feel that heaviness of more things that need to be purchased, <laughs> more relentless advertising. And what is it about gifts that make them so completely appropriate for this season, and yet at the same time so betrayed by commercialization? Because you might think, well, if we're going to give gifts to one another, doesn't that necessarily involve buying and selling things? So what's the tension? Why do we feel this, this um, contradiction? And what does it all have to do with the coming of Jesus? Well, the passage that we've read today in Ephesians 2 is centered on a gift. The most generous gift ever given. 
salvation in Christ Jesus. What we celebrate at Christmas is that God gave his only son. He became one of us so that we could become sons of God. And today I I want us to reflect on the generosity of God. That's point number one. The gift of the gospel and then how that gift transforms us into a life of generosity. But first of all, the generosity of God. Generosity is an essential part of God's nature. We commonly talk about God's omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence. He's he's all-knowing, he's uh, all-powerful, all-present. But God is also omnibenevolent, all-loving. And love naturally flows out in generosity. Uh, John 1, uh, 1 John tells us God not only loves, but he is love. And love, by nature, is generous. Generosity is what love looks like. Generosity is the language of love. When you love someone, you naturally give to them. You pour yourself out for that person. You pour out your words of praise, your time, your resources, even your body. You pour it out for that person as if it were nothing. Love naturally focuses on the beloved, on the one that it loves. So love gives. God gives. It's part of his nature because God is love. And so that's my first very simple point, that God is naturally a giver. It's simply who he is. Generosity is part of his character, of his nature. And here's something profound. We can only say that God is love because God is relationship within himself. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That perfect community of eternally self-giving love. Because love can only exist in relationship. For love to exist, you have to have at least the lover and the object of the love, the beloved. And so we can say God is love, not only that he's loving, because he exists as relationship. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally pouring themselves out for one another in the Trinity. And so God, by nature, gives of himself. He's continually pouring out in love. In fact, that's the reason why he created this universe, why he created us. It was the overflow of his love. The more I study the Trinity in in Scripture and, and even philosophically, the more I'm convinced that it really couldn't be any other way. If God weren't Trinity, he wouldn't exist in relationship, and therefore love could not exist eternally before creation. And so God would need to create something in order to love. God would be deficient until he creates something. Now that doesn't sound like God. But because God is Trinity, he he was eternally complete, eternally perfect, not lacking in anything. The reason he created was not to fulfill some sort of need, but it was the overflow 
of that love. It was his essential generosity. That's the reason behind all of creation. It's just like a, a, a married couple, a happily married couple who could go on simply being married, but why do they desire to have children? They don't have a physical need for children. If they're a happily married couple, the reason they want to have kids is to expand that love. It's the overflow of their love that wants to pour out and expand. And God's desire was to expand that community of self-giving love that he always had within himself. God didn't need to do it. Nothing required him to do it. The word to describe it is supererogatory. Now, if you're a second language English speaker, don't worry, because no one else knows this word either. (laughs) I've only ever heard it in philosophy lectures. And uh, it's a good one to remember, though, because it makes you sound really smart. So, uh, supererogatory, I'm probably not even saying it right. What it means is a good act that goes beyond what is needed. It goes beyond what duty requires. So you would do something supererogatory if, for instance, you, you decided to give your kidney to a stranger in need. No one would expect that of you. There's nothing requiring you to do that. It would be over and above. It would be supererogatory. And the crazy thing is, everything that God does is like that. Everything that he does is over and above. He only does supererogatory things. Sometimes we, uh, we like to think of ourselves as, as generous people, as, as going over and above. And I remember uh, uh, a bit from the, the comedian Chris Rock talking about parents who brag about being good parents. Uh, a parent who says, I take care of my kids. And he says, you're supposed to, dummy. <laughs> what do you want, a trophy? You're supposed to look after your kids. The reality is, even if we lived perfect lives of obedience, following everything that God said, we would still only be doing what we should have done in the first place. God can never owe us anything. We owe everything to his generosity. And actually, the situation is much much worse than we think. This passage, it begins by outlining the state of the human condition. It says, humanity is as good as dead wandering around aimlessly, misusing our bodies, misusing our minds, misusing all of God's creation, and steering ourselves towards destruction. Why? Because we're self-centered. And then there's this this beautiful turn. In my translation here, it, it says, but God. But God, who by all rights by all justice, should have disowned us, left us to to suffer the consequences of our own decisions, loved us, and was merciful. Even though we were dead, he made us alive with Christ. That is the generosity of God in the gospel. And it is utterly supererogatory. It's utterly over and above what could have been required of him. It is his grace. 
That's the simpler word to use. <laughs> the word translated grace in this passage is, is the Greek word haris. And it's used three times in this passage. This is actually two, uh, it's one of the two main words in the New Testament that tran- uh, it translated as gift. The other one is doron, which also is in this passage in verse 10. Um, and so in, in the Greek, you've got this word gift coming up four different times in this passage, which is why I chose it to talk about Christmas gifts. Um, three times is haris, and the last time is doron, which is significant, and we'll see that at the end. But this, it brings us to our second point. Why is it so important that the gospel was a gift? Well, seeing that the gospel is a gift, for one thing, it shows us why Christianity, why the gospel is completely different from any kind of religion. And the difference is, religion and the gospel operate in two completely different economies. Religion operates in what you could call the market economy where you buy and trade and barter and you measure wealth by consumption, by accumulation. But the gospel operates in what you could call the gift economy, where goods are freely given and received and you, we- you measure wealth by generosity. And they're two completely different forms of exchange. And I think this, is, this gets down to why we feel this tension between Christmas gifts and Christmas commercialism. There's a great book by uh, Lewis Hyde called The Gift. Uh, if you're an artist, if you're just interested in reading or knowing things, read this book. It's fantastic. Um, but it, what it looks at is how gifts are essentially different from commodities. And it focuses on art because art is essentially a gift. But... I want to just raise a few points that he brings up in that book. The first point that he makes um, that helps us see this difference is gifts are a kind of property that cannot be bought, sold, or bartered. As soon as you buy or trade or sell a gift, it ceases to be a gift. Woody Allen used to finish one of his stand-up routines Uh, pulling a a watch out of his pocket. And he says, this is a precious family heirloom. My grandfather sold it to me on his deathbed. (laughs) (laughs) The irony there is that, and and we know it intuitively, as soon as you sell a gift, it changes its nature. It steps out of the gift economy, it steps into the market economy. And that's why it's rude to ask someone how much they paid for the gift they're giving you. Or it's embarrassing to leave the tag on the gift that you're giving to somebody. And it's embarrassing also if you get found out putting that gift on eBay that someone's given you. (laughs) Never done that. Um, (laughs) The second thing about gifts is that they naturally flow towards the empty place, whereas commodities naturally flow towards the full place. So gifts, by nature, are unmerited. Commodities 
are for those that, that can afford them, those that have enough to, to get them. If you, if you deserved or earned a gift, it's not really a gift. It's called wages. So in the, in the market economy, all the goods flow towards those that have the resources. It flows towards the full people, the rich ones. But in the gift economy, all the goods flow naturally towards those that do not have, towards the, the, towards the ones that are empty, the ones that need filling. And so if, if you know um, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, the market economy is Ebenezer Scrooge at the beginning of the story. The gift economy is Ebenezer Scrooge at the end of the story. Thirdly, in the gift economy, you measure wealth by giving rather than receiving. The glory, in, in, the market, in the gift economy, the glory goes towards the givers rather than the receivers. So, and, and imagine this, if you were to land some incredible job and you, you had money to, to buy whatever car you want and you go out and you buy yourself a, a new Ferrari. That's a commodity. Who comes out good from that transaction? Well, you, you come out the big shot, right? Because you got the money to buy the Ferrari, right? That's part of the reason why people buy things like that. <laughs> now, imagine, on the other hand, someone gives you the gift of a Ferrari when actually you had no money for any car whatsoever. Now who comes out looking better from that exchange? Well, you still look good because you're still driving the car, but wouldn't it be strange for you, go to, for you to go around kind of uh, blowing your own trumpet because someone gave me this gift? I must be pretty amazing. <laughs> No, what, what you should naturally do is go around singing the praises of that person's generosity. Because the more undeserving the recipient, the bigger the gift becomes. That's the way gifts work. Fourth, uh, fourth point, gifts are essentially relational. Whereas commodities are impersonal. They set up boundaries. So love... We already saw love requires relationship and true love always offers itself as a gift. Love offers itself freely. It offers itself without limit, without, without thinking of what it's going to get back in return. And so gifts are that currency of love and relationship. And the way gifts work, whenever you receive a gift, there's naturally a bond that's formed. There's naturally a relational bond that's formed, and that's why you should never receive a gift from the mafia. Because there's always strings attached. It's also why you should never buy, uh, you should never receive a gift from someone who's trying to sell you a timeshare. Because at the end of the presentation, you, you find yourself unnaturally generous. <laughs> Gifts build relational attachments. Transactions set up boundaries. And so, because transactions set up boundaries, that's why a psychiatrist who is careful to, to, to you know, draw a line between I'm your professional counsel and I'm your friend, 
a psychiatrist should charge a fee because it sets up a, a, an appropriate boundary. Whereas if you're a lover trying to get out of the friend zone with someone, <laughs> what you should do is offer to buy them dinner, not make them pay for dinner. Yeah, you should offer a gift. A little bit of dating advice. Um, <laughs> now, I want, I want to turn us back to the, the, the gift that God gives us in the gospel. And, and through this lens, what we can see is God's gift in the gospel is the truest, most generous gift that could possibly be given. First of all, it's offered completely, com- completely freely, simply to be received by trusting in God's generosity. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The second thing, God's gift is offered to the neediest of recipients. The passage starts off by telling us that we are spiritually dead. And yet God offers us this gift. Um, Sometimes people think that, that the gospel is exclusive. It, 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 um, it pushes people out because it, it says there's only salvation in Christ. But the gospel is actually, when you see that it's a gift, what you see is it's actually incredibly inclusive because gifts naturally flow towards those that can't afford them, those that cannot merit them. Religion excludes by nature, because it says, come all those who are righteous enough to earn God's favor, and you will be blessed. Whereas the gospel says, it includes everyone, because it says, come all those who are empty and need filling, who are spiritually poor and have no hope of reaching God by their own good deeds, because God loves you, and he's offering you a free gift. That's why Romans eight, uh, 5, 8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thirdly, God's gift is offered without measure. Not only did God forgive, which is where a lot of people think that the gospel begins and ends. Oh, God's forgiven us. It goes far beyond that. It says, this passage says, he gave us new life. He made us alive together with Christ. Not only did he give us new life, it says he seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And now what that's talking about is the throne room, being seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. It's talking about the position of the child of the king, the inheritor of the kingdom. That's the position of an heir. And so it says, in the coming ages, all of this is so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And the word immeasurable there is hyperbalon. It's the word we get hyperbole from. God's gift is hyperbolic. It is beyond all exaggeration. We can't conceive of how generous it is. It's completely superlative. And the fourth thing, the last thing is, this gift was given to form relationship 
with us. And this is the heart of it all. It says God loved us. And what is the ultimate gift that a lover can offer? Themselves. The gift, giving of yourself is the ultimate goal of love. That's what every lover wants to, to be able to do. And so what that does is form a bond. If God simply wanted to make people who would do certain things for him, he would have offered us a deal. But God doesn't desire servants. God desires sons. God desires daughters. Servants exist in the market economy. Children exist in the gift economy. And God did all of this to make us sons and daughters of God, adopted heirs to the kingdom. And we, so we see this big difference between religion and, and, and gospel. In religion, you're in the market economy. You're a servant. You're, you're, you're trying to please the gods in order to get the wages of their, their blessing, their, their gifts. But in the gospel, God himself is the gift. He did it all to make us his kids. And that's why Christmas is about the greatest gift ever given. The greatest possible gift. What could be a greater gift than God himself offered to us to form a bond of relationship? And so it brings us to to our final point, which is the, the transforming gift. Every gift calls for a gift in return. It, it demands reciprocity, back and forth. Gifts are never static. And so, what can we offer back to God? It has to start with gratitude. Because if gratitude isn't offered back, then what it reveals is you haven't actually received a gift. So for instance, there's a simple gift that many of you have given many times through your life. You've opened the door for somebody. It's a simple gift. What is the appropriate response? You'd say, thanks. (laughs) Now that offer of gratitude is is a little token gift back. It's, it's saying, uh, you didn't need to do that. It wasn't uh, required of you, but I'm grateful. Now, saying thank you for someone opening the door for you, it, it's not explicitly required. There's no law that says you have to do that. But when you do that, it shows that you've received a gift. It shows that what you, you've taken that gesture as a gift not as something that you've deserved. So if you open the door for me and I just stroll through without even looking at you, what that shows is, in my heart, I'm saying, I deserved that. That's exactly what you should have done for someone such as me. (laughs) It was my right, my entitlement. But 
If you simply turn and say thank you to that person, what you're saying is you didn't need to do that, but you did, and I'm grateful. And so that that little gift of gratitude, without that, it shows that we haven't actually received a gift. And so how do we show that we're grateful to God's gift? And I think the basic mistake that humanity makes with this question is, we think that God operates in the market economy. We think that God is out to take stuff from us, that he wants our money, that he wants our time, that he wants our, our, our moral behavior, that he wants to take our pleasure and our freedom. And I think the reason we think that is because deep down, we want to be independent. We want to set up a barrier between us and God and say, thank you very much, God. I'm okay on my own. A bit like, uh, you know, and I'm not saying this is bad, when a, a teenager grows up and they want to start paying for their own meals, they want to start paying for their own stuff. It's a way of saying, thanks, mom and dad. I can take it from here. <laughs> I am my own person. But God doesn't want your stuff. What could you ever give God that he doesn't already have? God doesn't want your stuff. God is a lover. All that God wants is you. The return gift is simply ourselves. That's what a lover wants. That is the appropriate response between two lovers. And so, I really, we have to see that God, in his, in his nature, he's a giver, not a taker. He's a giver, not a consumer. The entire system of religion is built on trying to pry things out of God's hands by earning them, by behaving a certain way so that God will have to bless us. And all the while, what the gospel is telling us is, all the things that we ever truly wanted, God is offering us as a gift. Simply to be received by faith. And the the other funny thing about gifts is that you can only fully receive it when you pass it on. That's that's what the act of gratitude is. You receive the gift and you have to pass it on. Because remember, if you don't have the gratitude in passing it on, you haven't actually received it. And so as you pass it on in gratitude, what happens is generosity transforms you. That's how gifts work. They're always in motion and gifts, they don't, they don't go full circle until they're passed on. The word generosity, it comes from the, the Latin uh, genere, which is, it, it's the root of our word generate. And so God's generos- generosity, you could say, regenerates us. Generosity is generative. It makes things. As we receive the generosity of God as a free gift, what happens is we're changed. And we begin to flow out in generosity in turn. 
And that's what I think this passage is talking about when it makes a distinction. You may or may not have caught this, that it mentions work, uh, uh, works and in a negative way, and then it mentions good works. So what's the difference? I think, again, what we're seeing is these two economies, the market and the gift. Two forms of work. Work in the market economy, which is work as earning, and work in the gift economy, which is work as gratitude. It says, uh, it says in this passage, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And that's the first use of, of works there. Um, and then the, the, the next part says, God offered us this gift so that we could walk in the good works he's prepared for us. And it was interesting to me that the word that's translated good works could also be translated generous works. The first kind of work in the market economy, it's a kind of work that leads to our own glory. It leads to our own pride. If you treat God's grace as something earned, as a purchased commodity that is owed to you, it makes you unable to live generously. It makes you unable to do generous works because what you're doing it's, it's a form of payment. It's a form of, of uh, you know, purchase and, and, and trade. And I think we spend most of our lives trying to prove to the world, trying to prove to ourselves, to prove to God that we're worthy to be here, that we're worthy to be loved, to be accepted and cared for. And we think our worthiness comes out of our works. Our worthiness comes out of of what we do. But the gospel says God wants our works to come out of a place of worthiness. That we're loved first, therefore we can respond generously with gratitude. It says, we are his worksmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. And it's often pointed out, the word here for workmanship is poema. We obviously get our word poem from that. And if you think about a poem, there's nothing more superfluous, unnecessary than a poem, <laughs> than poetry. Poetry is essentially, it, it, I mean, poetry and all, all of art actually is, is generous. It's it's above and beyond what's, what's needed or required. This is why lovers write poems to one another. They're gifts. Religion is all about the market economy. It says, I obediently work, therefore God accepts me. The gospel is all about the gift economy. It says, God accepts me as a free gift in Christ. Therefore, in gratitude, I obediently work. We're set free in the gospel. We're set free from that transaction, that market mentality. It sets us free to be truly generous because now you're not doing it out of a sense of obligation. You're doing it out of a deep sense of gratitude. I think the way that we live 
this is my final point here, that the way that we live, I feel like we most often believe it's the other way around. That if we offer God an acceptable life as our sacrifice, he'll bless us, he'll love us, he'll change us. And the last thing I want to touch on here is, remember it says, uh, it uses that word grace or haris three times, which is also translated as gift. But the last time, it uses the word doron. Um, not a result of works, it's the gift of God. And I said that was significant, and, th- and this is why. The word doron in the Bible, it most commonly refers to the, the, the sacrificial gifts offered in the temple. A gift given as a sacrifice to God. And so we go around thinking, well, if I offer the correct sacrifice, God will be happy with me and he'll bless me. But the crazy thing in this passage is, it says, we're not the ones offering the gift. We're not the ones offering the sacrifice that's pleasing to God. It says, God is the one offering the gift. He's the one offering the sacrifice here. It is the gift of God, it says. When we were utterly unable to offer that gift that was pleasing to him, Christmas, the message of Christmas is that he himself became one of us and offered himself in our place. Offered himself up as a gift so that we could be brought home, so that we could be made sons and daughters of God. We didn't earn it. God didn't owe it to us. And yet he's given us everything in Christ. He poured out his generosity so that we would see that generosity and it would make us trust him. That's what faith is. We see the generosity of God. We see his good character and we know that we can trust him. We entrust ourselves to him. And as we do that, we're transformed into the kind of people that can live generously. And so that is the generosity of Christmas. And there, there may be one or two of you here that this is a completely new kind of message for you. Um, and my message to you is this is offered to you. God is offering his gift to you as well. Because God desires relationship with you. He's a good father. He's always longed to know you. And even though we've separated ourselves by being self-centered and, 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 and uh, heading in the opposite direction to God, trying to set up this barrier of, of paying our own way through life, the good news is God sent his son. He's forgiven us. He set us free. He's made us children of God through that gift of Jesus on the cross. And that can be yours. All that we have to do is receive the gift by trusting in him. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
It's the simplicity of receiving a gift. Let's pray together. Father God, I pray that this Christmas season, this Advent season, you would awaken our hearts like never before to the, the joy, the beauty, the wonder of your gift. Lord, every, any gift that we could possibly give is just a, a, a dim reflection of your ultimate gift, which is yourself. If you're here and you have never received that gift, come to God today. Admit that you're lost without him. Receive that gift in faith. And he promises to transform you, to make you his child. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for your generous heart that overflows in every good gift. We're grateful, Lord, and we celebrate you this this Advent season in Jesus' name. Amen.